When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome Dimitri Zygalatas to the show today to talk about his new book, Ritual, How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Dimitri Zygalatas is an anthropologist and a cognitive scientist at the University of Connecticut, he studied rituals all over the world, combining ethnographic observations with novel scientific experiments. Dimitri Zygalatis, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. The topic of rituals is exceptionally relevant to today, the time of this recording. This week will include lots of rituals for billions of people, Passover, Easter, and Ramadan occur this week, as well as a Hindu holiday and perhaps others. So all these people around the world will be performing rituals related to their festivals. Why? Tell, tell us why at this precise time of the year, and also address the issue of how, despite the differences in these widely differing religions, they have a great deal in common. Well, there are two main questions to address here. So the first one is, why do people perform rituals in the first place? And this is really the question that has motivated all of my research over the last uh, couple of decades. So I've always been fascinated by, by this question. This is essentially the title of my book, How Things That Seem to Be Pointless, How They're Able to Create So Much Deep Meaning for Individuals. And presumably, we're going to get into this. Of course. Now, the second question is, is why, why this time of the year? Historically, if you, if you look at major festivals across different cultures, you would see that springtime is particularly important. And you just have to think about how crucial um, natural cycles were to human societies around the world. Farmers, for example, they would depend on those cycles for their very existence. So the arrival of spring is, is a, a reminder of the, uh, the life cycle, the, the renewal of, of life. And it's also um, a time to be reassured that this year, too, the, the, the crop will be, will be there. So most cultures around the world historically have had their major festivals around this time of, uh, of year or uh, when the harvest comes to celebrate those life cycles. So spring and fall are big times for many uh, cultural and religious rituals. Spring, but- fall, so also the solstices. So there four, the four seasons, they're celebrated in, in most cultures around the world. Today, it's very easy for us to forget how important those kinds of cycles were 
for human beings throughout history. Right, especially those of us who live in the city and are far away from the sources of our foods. Uh, of course. But ritual, rituals aren't necessarily religious. Nevertheless, they all share uh, the details of being very exacting and fastidious and having to be done in exactly the same way. Uh, as uh, you put it in the book, the letter of the law is more important than the spirit. Uh, talk about how that issue played out when President Obama took the oath of office for his second term. Yes. So if, if ritual is anything, it is uh, structure, it is rigidity, it is regularity. And um, this has important effects on our psychology. But um, for this precise reason, people always have a sense that a ritual must be performed in exactly the same way. Um, a lot of the time we don't even realize that certain rituals do not actually achieve anything, that what, what is actually being achieved is done by the paperwork. When you get married, it's not the, the ritual that establishes you as a, as a couple. It is actually the paperwork you, you sign. When President Obama was inaugurated, um, the Supreme Court justice who administered the oath, he was doing that out of memory. He made a tiny mistake. And this mistake didn't change anything at all at the, um, the semantics or the, the significance of what he actually said. Uh, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something along the lines, I do solemnly swear that I would faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And the mistake was something like I would execute the office faithfully. So it was the exact same meaning, no change at all. Now, the president realized that there was a mistake. So he gave, he paused and gave the, uh, uh, the justice some time to rephrase, uh, which he did again, but again made the, the mistake. So Obama recited the, um, a third version of the oath, which again was identical in meaning. And after that, there was there was rampant speculation in the in the media about whether he was legitimately the president or not. Even legal scholars weighed in on this, and some of them said that it's an open question. The White House initially dismissed those concerns, but eventually um, they gathered the press uh, around closed doors this time at the White House and had the ceremony again, as they stated, out of a, of an abundance of caution. And I think this is the, the perfect example of, uh, of how important it is for a ritual to follow uh, the letter, not just the spirit of the actions. In, in another context, we would think of it as just being legalistic or even petty. But the details, the, the, the devil, the angel is in the details. The meaning is in following the details precisely. It is, uh, and, and for that matter, you you see uh, that that people too often get upset when rituals are disturbed. There's a there's a really interesting study that was done by some researchers in the United States, where they asked people how they would feel if the, uh, some of their um, their national holidays were altered, and they asked people about various types of holidays. So when they asked them about things like uh, George Washington's birthday, so President's Day. They didn't feel very strongly about this. But when they asked them about holidays that were highly ritualized, things like Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, how would you feel if those were 
shifted by a week, for example. People felt moral outrage at just at the idea of this. The, the, the emotion they expressed more commonly was anger. And the most interesting thing is that this has actually happened before. Uh, FDR, Roosevelt, the American president, moved Thanksgiving by a week earlier so that um, the holiday period would be extended and people would spend more money, uh, thus helping the economy. And at the time, there was there was moral outrage throughout the United States. Most states refused to enforce the uh, order. Um, they they called it uh, Frank's giving. <laughs> um, there was uh, something just sort of a, a, a national uh, riot, and and eventually there was a there was a compromise and it was changed back. And you think it was not just nostalgia. It was because the ritual would be changed if the date would be changed? Well, I, I think it's because the, the, one of the reasons that ritual feels so comforting is precisely because it is familiar. And that, that is, of course, connected to the feeling of nostalgia. What is nostalgia? It is precisely that feeling of, of familiarity. And rituals are very good at creating this because they have rigid structure. Right. Unless a a ritual is performed in exactly the same way as it has always been, it doesn't feel that it's, that it provides this connection to the to the past, to the to the to the tradition and the community that we're part of. Right, and it's it's the connection to the past and the connection to the future as well. Because yeah, in a you, sense, you... a, a, a collective ritual uh, connects us, makes us feel like we're members of a this transcendent society that extends beyond space and time. We It connects us with people um, beyond the narrow circle of who we know, but also our ancestors and, and, and our future generations. Now, people don't seem to know, at least consciously, uh, why they engage in rituals, but they find them meaningful and important. Uh, when you ask them in your research, uh, their answers were, it's who we are, it's what we do, or it's simply, it's our tradition. Do you think that the very not knowing the reason adds to the ritual's value? It, one of the basic characteristics of, of ritual. So you can look at structural um, aspects of ritual. So they tend to be very rigid and repetitive. But what really defines it, what makes it a ritual, is that it's uh, either has no stated purpose, or even when it does, there's no causal link between the actions that we perform um, and the purported outcome. So if you perform a rain dance, there is no causal link between uh, your actions and water falling from the sky. And in this sense, not knowing uh, the the reason or the outcomes of a particular ritual is is part of its uh, appeal. Um, there are studies that show that people readily recognize ritual actions as demarcating something as special. So if you show them, psychologists have done studies where they, they showed people two different beverages, and one is presented in a ritualized way and one is not. And then they asked them to... Um, to choose one of the two uh, beverages to to state w- which one they uh, they consider more valuable, and it is the one that is ritualized. And uh, watching ritualized actions immediately triggers in our in our brain a sense of uh, value and importance. 
Now that happens with group rituals that also bind the group together. And as you said, with the past and the future of the group. But what about individual rituals? Many people have them, including many writers. Uh, do you have a writing ritual? We all have rituals. Um, my writing ritual involves the preparation of uh, coffee. And this is also useful to, to make the distinction between rituals and habits. So just making a cup of coffee, I wouldn't call this a, a ritual. But if you have to make your cup of coffee always in the same way, always in the same cup, and if you have to make it even if you're not going to drink it, then this becomes a, a ritual. So it's more about the action than it is about the outcome. So right now I have a cup of coffee uh, on my desk and I, and I haven't touched it. it I, I just made it because that's what I do every morning before sitting at my desk. Uh, yes, and I read that uh, Beethoven had a similar ritual. Uh, he got up early in the morning at a set time and he made coffee, counting out exactly 60 coffee beans. Uh, and then he sat down to write his brilliant music. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so this is a perfect example because it, it involves all of these elements that, uh, that make rituals uh, appealing to us. It involves repetition, counting all the beans, very precise uh, structure, and, and of course has no specific uh, purpose. But it right. is pr this regularity that has all these important psychological effects for, for individuals. And this is an idea that anthropologists have been um, uh, have come up with for a very long time that ritual is connected to anxiety both in the sense that when we are stressed in a, the most stressful periods of our lives we become more ritualized but also in the sense that these rituals in turn help us soothe anxiety young children love rituals they they seem to crave it they ritualize everything from bedtime stories which sometimes might have to be the exact same story told in the exact same way without skipping or reorganizing the words uh to everything about their days is that just a developmental issue is that just a way to get socialized to their society or is there something more that goes on with kids? It's true that young children display a lot of uh, ritualization. And as someone who has a three-year-old son uh, right now, I'm very, very aware of that. Now, one thing to say here is that um, rituals are, um, are very appealing to, to um, children. And this is related to, um, to the way our brain has evolved. Now, first of all, we are hypersocial species. So most of the, of the things that we know, most of the uh, skills that we get come from other people. So it's particularly important for us to be able to, uh, to be good at imitating others and, uh, and to do what uh, other people in our culture do, which, which is why young children are, are very quick to copy other uh, adults' rituals. So imagine if you're if you're a toddler and you're just uh, becoming uh, mobile and you perhaps you begin to forage uh, by yourself, then it's very important to do as others do. So to avoid the red berries, to avoid those mushrooms, to stick to what you know, to do things exactly the way others have done it, because that's uh, that's how they survived. Uh, 
So on the one hand, uh, rituals are very appealing to to young children. On the other hand, they also already at a very young age, they seem to have a, a sense that re- these rituals do something. There are very interesting studies with children that show, for example, that um, if you give them stories about a girl who had two birthday parties, they most of them will say that this girl um, grew by two years. Or if you give them a story uh, about somebody who couldn't have a birthday party, they might tell you that um, they're, they're a year younger. So there's a sense that rituals actually have efficacy. And this same sense stays with us as, as adults. In a study that my colleagues and I have done, we showed people uh, athletes shooting free throws from basketball games. And um, for half of them, we showed them the um, the pre-shot rituals that athletes perform. Sometimes they kiss the ball or they spin the ball, for example. And for the other the other half of the times, we didn't. And when when the shot was ritualized, people when they were called to make a prediction about whether it was going to be successful, they were more likely to consider that shot uh, to predict that this shot would be more successful when a ritual had been performed. Hmm. You have uh, uh, studies that demonstrate the actual reduction in anxiety uh, that rituals cause. Tell us about them. Yes. So as I mentioned, this goes back to some of the earliest anthropological theories about this connection between ritual and anxiety that, uh, however, remained elusive for a very long time. So now we have, uh, we have the methods and the tools to, to study that relationship. So with my colleagues, with a former graduate student, um, Martin Lang, we conducted a series of studies to look into this. So first, we brought people into a laboratory and we stressed them up. We, we gave them a task that involved describing an object of art and we told them they would have to make a public presentation in front of a, our a panel of art critics. And this is something that really stresses people up, public speaking, especially when you're unprepared and your audience is made up of experts, and we used physiological monitors to measure their anxiety. So we know they were very stressed. And there was a control group that only had to write a short essay about that object. And then what we did is that we used uh, motion sensors to, to quantify their behavior. And we, we found that the more stressed people got, the more structured their, their behavior was, the more ritualized. They became repetitive, uh, rigid, just like what you see in, in a typical ritual. Now, of course, that, that study only shows the first part of the, of the equation, that anxiety might lead to ritualization. And we know this from everyday life, because if you want to observe spontaneous rituals, then some of the best places to go to would be a casino or a hospital or a stadium. Athletes perform a lot of uh, rituals, gamblers perform a lot of rituals because they face uncertain situations. Now, the second part of, uh, of the equation is uh, examining whether performing these actions actually helps reduce anxiety. And we've done this in several different ways. For example, we have correlational data among students at the University of Connecticut that show that those who attend more uh, rituals with their group have lower levels of cortisol. We also did this in, um, in Hindu temples in Mauritius, where we found that after performing um, their weekly rituals compared to not performing them, people had lower levels of anxiety. And we measured this by using heart rate variability 
and also by measuring self-reports. So, so this is also uh, something that becomes um, conscious. And finally, we've done studies where we look at when we manipulate people's behavior. So we have them follow more repetitive, more rigid actions. And we see that, that those structured movements actually, again, help them reduce anxiety. So it's, it's a powerful social and personal means. And it goes back to the mists of prehistoric times. Uh, we, conventional wisdom uh, used to say that uh, farming began because of economic reasons. It was, uh, mm. it was better, a more reliable way to provide for the group or for individuals or for tribes uh, by farming than by uh, hunting and gathering. Uh, tell us how a 12,000-year-old archaeological site challenged that conventional wisdom and suggests instead that farming began after uh, people got together for ritual and social reasons. So you're referring to, um, to the site known as Gobekli Tepe. This is an archaeological site uh, in present-day Turkey, close to the Syrian border. And this is, this is very important. It's a, it's a site that has changed the way we, we thought of, uh, of our history as a, as a species. What was found there was a, um, a, a vast area where people had built at least 20 different circular structures. We could call them, for all intents and purposes, we can call them temples. And those were made by using these enormous monolithic pillars. Some of them weigh more than 20 tons, which were carved at a nearby quarry and then um, carried there. So they must have required thousands of people at the time with no technology, basically, to transport them to that site and build those temples. And the most astonishing part about this is not just its age. So it's 12,000 years old or, or more, which makes it twice as old as Stonehenge, three times as old as uh, the pyramids. But notably, this was a time where there is no known permanent settlement. So this predates agriculture, it predates uh, the wheel, uh, pottery, writing, any of the hallmarks of civilization. And that means that this site was built by hunter-gatherers. Very often these hunter-gatherers would have had to travel thousands of miles to visit this as a, as a sort of pilgrimage. And it is only a few hundred years later that in the same area we find the first evidence of agriculture. So the archaeologist who, who dug up this site, Klaus Schmidt, uh, he coined this famous phrase, first came the temple, then the city. And that means that everything we thought we knew about our ancestors and about the incentives that led to farming might actually be wrong. Um, we used to think that people settled um, into um, towns and then cities. They became farmers in order to create a food surplus, which then allowed them to... Um, to um, have things like uh, social hierarchies and division of labor and, and build armies and religions and, and have philosophy and science and so on and so forth. But when you think about it, this doesn't make much sense because we know that the transition from 
hunting and gathering to agriculture had devastating consequences to those early farmers. Surely they didn't do that so that we could reap the benefits thousands of years later by living in cities and having things like healthcare and organized education. Uh, to them, it was backbreaking labor. It was more exposure to pathogens. They were living with their animals. Their archaeological findings show that their the average height dropped by 10 centimeters. Their life expectancy was shortened. People were having more children, but most of them would die. They were living in horrible conditions, um, exposed to uh, uh, exploitation by a handful of elites. So surely those benefits were not material ones. If Klaus Schmidt is right, and this is a very provocative idea, then the uh, the impetus for for that eventually led to the establishment of the first civilizations was not a material one, uh, was a spiritual one. It was the people's craving for. Uh, to uh, for coming together and performing these collective rituals that would have taken place there. Uh, some collective rituals provide a personally elevated emotional experience, an experience in which the sense of self is expanded. Uh, you participated in that kind of ritual uh, and experience had a transcendent experience of your own. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so interestingly, by the way, this this would be exactly the types of rituals that you would have seen at uh, Gobekli Tepe, these large-scale collective rituals, highly arousing, that lead to this feeling of um, of togetherness and, and oneness. So this collective effervescence is, is yet one um, anthropological idea that was untested for a very long time. In my own research, I try to find ways of measuring this this feeling. So, for example, in the context of a of a Spanish fire walking ritual, we we measured people's physiological states. We measured their um, emotional arousal by using heart rate monitors. And what we find is that in the context of these ceremonies, people's heart rates begin to synchronize. And this is not something indiscriminate. The closer when you map the social network of of this area, you you will find that the closer you are to someone socially, the stronger this phenomenon is. And this extends to the kinds of rituals we, we perform today. So when you take part in a, in a public demonstration or when you go when you attend a conference or a, or a football game, um, if you ever got goosebumps at the back of your neck, that was the feeling that, um, that Emil Durkheim described when he first talked about collective effervescence. Yeah, you can imagine it happening a lot at uh, rock concerts where people are increasingly together and uh, almost ecstatic in with the music and the movement, and uh, you can almost see it. Uh, Absolutely, I- and, and this is if, if I may interrupt you. Uh, Please, this is uh, a very good example, also because. Rituals are, are so good at creating this sense of collective effervescence because they're, they, they're able to, to trigger all sorts of different mechanisms at the same time. And they have many means of doing that. And one of those means is, is music. Uh, it, it is no coincidence that most collective rituals in the world include music and some kind of rhythmic coordination. If we all get together and uh, and move as one and act li- uh, like one and look like one, then we begin to feel like one. 
Right. And of course, if you couple this with high arousal, then all of these emotional expressions or all these emotional reactions that we experience at the same time, they um, they amplify that phenomenon greatly. And, and we really feel like one. When we ask people um, why they perform their rituals, perhaps at, at first they look puzzled. They, they, don't, they don't have a particular purpose in mind. But this is why it's important to do anthropological work. So spending a long, uh, a lot of time with these people. Uh, sometimes w- um, people call anthropology as deep hanging out. So when you start <laughs> spending time with uh, well, with uh, practitioners, you realize that even though they, when you ask them the question of of why they do those rituals, they might just defer to to tradition or or to culture. But they, at the same time, have a notion that these rituals actually have tangible outcomes. So they will talk when I talk to, to the Spanish fireworkers about, about their ritual, they would say things like, when you go up there, there are hundreds or thousands of people, but you feel like one. And the next day you see someone in the streets that has been through this ritual with you, and you have bonded. You become brothers. All right. Finally, Dimitri... Uh, there's a great deal of writing about how people in the Western world are uh, involved in fewer and fewer rituals, traditional rituals. There's less mm-hmm. church attendance. There are fewer family gatherings. People live far away from one another. You don't even need to be married. In some countries, marriage is all but gone. Um, but people are trying to develop new rituals. And I wonder what you think about, for example, Burning Man. Is that a ritual or a pilgrimage with ritual that you think uh, will be able to last? Yeah, Burning Man is a great example. So first of all, it's a reasonable assumption to to make. It, it appears that uh, ritual is declining. But in fact, I would argue that it is not. Uh, it is true that religious rituals in the West might be uh, declining. But uh, I do think that um, the human need for for ritual goes deep into our evolutionary lineage, and it's not going to go anywhere. So what we see, in fact, is that as people in the West take part in um, fewer religious rituals, they seek to uh, to fill that void by participating in other kinds of rituals. So we see things like um, our secular institutions are are very ritualized. We see things like college graduations that are very flamboyant. We see things like big birthday party, uh, uh, birthday celebrations. We see things like uh, rock concerts and, and and people chanting together in uh, in sports stadiums. And of course, we see things like Burning Man. Now, if, if Burning Man, it's Burning Man is something that is very hard to define. So, for those who don't know what it is, uh, it's a gathering. Uh, burners do not like to call it a festival. They they uh, they say it's a movement. Uh, some of them might call it a pilgrimage. And interestingly, that um, that crowd is is a very secular one. So, what happens there is that people gather uh, in in the desert in Nevada, and they they set up a makeshift city, essentially, made mostly of tents, that is the size of the Italian town of Pisa. So up to 80,000 individuals will gather together, build this city from scratch, and then eight days later, take it apart and leave no traces behind. And 
there's there there's a lot happening there. There are a lot of artistic installations, um, interactive ones. And essentially, what you see there is ritual. Now, to some extent, this is not um, this is by design. the The founders of Burning Man uh, read the uh, writings in the anthropology of religion, and they intentionally wanted to create a meaningful ritual experience for participants. But at the same time, most of the interesting elements at Burning Man have uh, have emerged, and the best example of that is the temple. The temple is the sits at the at the center of the uh, of the city of that makeshift city, and at the end of the uh, of the week, the temple and and the man, a huge gigantic structure at the center, they will be burnt, and everybody gathers together to watch them. Uh, burned down. Thus, the name Burning Man. But this temple was not designed to be a temple. So the uh, the um, organizers had invited an artist to to create um, an installation, and he wasn't really sure what he wanted to build. So he just started building. But during the um, the building, one of the crew members died, not in the construction, but in a, in a motorcycle accident. And then people started when they heard the story. They came to that structure that he had built and they started posting messages, putting up photos or, or notes relating to, to people they had lost themselves. And at the end of the week, they gathered to watch that burn. And some of them were in tears. And, and it's a, it was at that moment that he realized he had built a temple. And since then, the temple has been rebuilt every year. And today, thousands of people flock to that temple to leave memorabilia uh, relating to to somebody they have lost, perhaps an abusive relationship, something they, they want to forget, they want to leave behind. And at the end of the week, they gather to watch the temple burn, and very often they're, they're in tears when they when they do that. So I, I think this is a, the perfect context to um, to highlight the enduring need for, for ritual um, and also the ability of ritual to um, to emerge in, when when people have this void when they're deprived of other types of rituals they will create new ones. The book is Ritual: How Seemingly Senseless Acts Make Life Worth Living. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Dimitri. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.